Earlier this week at the dinner table, Amanda dropped a riddle. It was an interesting way to begin dinner. My wife's awesome like that. She dropped a riddle. Some of you might have heard it. Whether you've heard it or not, I want to see if you can get the answer, but don't say anything out loud. Okay? Here's the riddle. A boy and his father are in a car accident. The father is killed. The boy survives but needs surgery. He's wheeled into the operating room, and the surgeon takes one look at the boy and says, I'm sorry, I cannot operate on him. He's my son. How's that possible? We tend to fill in the blank spaces in our minds with stereotypes. It's how the human brain organizes all the bits of information we're constantly processing. Ingrained patterns, cultural assumptions influence our perspective and our thinking. We process information from pre-categorized boxes. Here's the riddle again. A boy and his father are in a car accident. The father is killed. The boy survives but needs surgery. He's wheeled into the operating room, and the surgeon takes one look at the boy and says, I'm sorry, I cannot operate on him. He's my son. How is this possible? Raise your hand if you've heard this before. Okay, y'all don't get to answer. Raise your hand if you haven't heard this before. Keep your hand up if you think you have an answer. Yeah. If you haven't heard this, half of you. One of you kind of thinks you have the answer. The surgeon's his mom. I know, I know. It was a difficult dinner. (laughs) In some way, this is what's happening in the minds of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They know the facts. They're repeating the information back and forth to each other. They get the events. They just can't connect the dots. They know what's going on, but they don't understand how it fits together. Here's the big idea of this passage. When it comes to Jesus, we don't really need more information. What we need is revelation. Let me pray for us. Father, I know I'm not the most knowledgeable. I know I'm not the best communicator. And the only way your people are going to see you and see your son and understand how all the scriptures point to him is if you open their minds. So come, Holy Spirit. Father, we want to see and understand the glory of of the risen king and what that means for us, what it means for our marriages and our parenting and our friendship and our neighbors and our co-workers and our classmates. Come Holy Spirit, we want to see Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Open your Bibles to Luke 24. Luke 24. In your blue Bibles, that's on page 885. I want to begin with verses 13 and 14. That very day, what day? The day that Jesus rose from the dead, the third day. Two of them, two of who? Two disciples of Jesus were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. 
And they were talking with each other about everything that had been happening over the past several days. Now, when we begin to read this, it's important to remember that the events uh, surrounding Jesus' crucifixion and, and resurrection may be familiar to us. But you can imagine the confusion of those who had witnessed these events firsthand. It, it was really fresh for them, right? It wasn't exactly what they were expecting. Everything that had been going on at the Passover meal where Jesus emphatically identifies himself as the Messiah, where Judas, Judas betrays him and then Jesus is arrested by this unruly mob and he's illegally tried and Pilate tries to release him, but the religious leaders and the angry crowd are demanding that he be crucified and Barabbas, a guilty man, is set free and Jesus, an innocent man, is unjustly sentenced and tortured and mocked as a criminal. And then he's crucified, a spike through each hand, a spike through both feet in between two criminals to one. He turns and says, today you will be with me in paradise. And the soldiers strip Jesus and they cast lots for his garments and Jesus prays, Father, Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And then at noon, everything becomes dark, supernaturally, physically dark. And Jesus cries out, into your hands, Father, I commend my spirit. And it is finished. And then Jesus died. And there was a great earthquake. And the curtain uh, enclosing the Holy of Holies in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And the women wrap Jesus' body in burial cloth and they lay him in a tomb. And then when they return, when the Sabbath is over, and this is what was freaking everybody out. The stone had been rolled away, Jesus' body was gone, and two angels gleaming with bright light Declare he's not here, he's risen. That's what the two disciples are talking about as they return home to Emmaus from celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem. And if you're familiar with these events, it may be difficult to appreciate the degree of shock and surprise these two disciples felt about everything that had been going on. I mean, they didn't have a lifetime of Easter church services and Easter baskets and Easter eggs and Easter message series to create space in their brains for the resurrection. This was new. This was fresh. This was right there present for them for the first time, firsthand. When the women went to the tomb, everybody expected Jesus to still be in it. And so the empty tomb and the angelic news, he's not here, he's risen, is like a riddle their brains can't solve. It wasn't what they were expected. It wasn't how they had been thinking, how they had been responding. They know the facts, but they don't understand them. And they don't need more information. What they need is revelation. Many years ago, uh, I was studying in England, and my little sister got married in Austin, and so I flew home to be a part of her wedding weekend. 
And at the reception, I was talking to uh, a bunch of friends, and um, I re-engaged with a longtime friend of my parents. And uh, he was asking me about what I was doing and what I was studying, and I said, you know, I'm over in England. He said, oh, you're here just just for the wedding, or are you done? I said, no, I'm just here for four days, and then I'm flying back. Oh, when are you flying back? I'm flying back on Tuesday afternoon. Where are you flying from? I said, well, I'm, I'm flying out of Houston. He's like, oh, okay, and we continued to talk. And it was really good uh, to catch up with him. I hadn't seen him in years. And so that Tuesday, uh, I drive to Houston, and um, my parents drop me off, and I go in the airport, and I come up to the counter to check in, and I get my ticket, and then I go through security, and then I go to the international counter where we're going to board the plane in about an hour, hour and a half. And I walk up to the counter, and I hand him my ticket, and uh, the flight attendant looks up to me and says, oh, Mr. Kessler, we've been waiting for you. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, I, this is a long time ago. Okay, I'm in, I'm in shorts, a T-shirt, Tevas, and I've got a bandana around my head. So I roll. And I, I said, I said, you are, you have been. That's very kind of you. <laughs> Thinking, gosh, this is an overly nice flight attendant. And then she said, and we'd love for you to come and wait in the lounge. Please help yourself to the food and drinks. I'm like, someone's made a mistake. <laughs> but I'm, I'm rolling with it. So I go in, I enjoy this lounge. This is amazing. It gets better. Um, some, some, about an hour later, someone comes into the lounge and gets me and says, Mr. Kessler, I'd like to take you to your seat now. And so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm escorted, personal escort, down that thing, right? And so we're getting on the plane, and I'm thinking, wow, my cheap student back class, economy class, back of the plane, buy the bathroom ticket, I'm going to get in business class. This is going to be awesome. I've been upgraded. So we walk in the plane. I'm thinking, here we go. We're going right into business class. But we didn't go to the right. We went to the left. And I'm thinking, no way. First time in my life, I'm going to be sitting in first class. Last time in my life as well. I'm going to be sitting in first class. So we walk right through first class. And right when I think, oh, my gosh, this is the best, and I'm going to sit down, we take a right and we go up a flight of stairs. I didn't even know there were stairs on an airplane. We go up. There are six seats bigger than me. And I was sat in executive first class. Didn't even know that existed. And it was, uh, there were two flight attendants. There were only two people up there. I was one of them for the trip from Houston to London, five-course meal, my own video screen. And when we landed, honestly, I did not want to get off the plane. <laughs> this is similar, I think, to what's happening in the disciples' lives. They don't understand who they're talking to. I didn't really fathom that my longtime family friend was the executive vice president of Continental Airlines and what he was going to do for me. In a similar way, the disciples don't realize that they're talking to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, the risen Messiah, and all that he has done for them and all that he was about to do for them. And this is the beginning of this amazing encounter. Look at verses 15 through 19. They're talking and discussing the things 
with each other. And Jesus himself comes up and starts walking beside them, but they're kept from recognizing him. And he asks them, Jesus is just, he's so cool. He's so calm. He's so collected. He's just coming to hang out with them. And he's like, hey, what are y'all talking about? It's not that he doesn't know. It's that he's engaging them in relationship. He's provoking conversation. He's drawing close to them. And and they stop. They stand still, their faces downcast, and one of them named Cleopas says, dude, are you the only one in all of Jerusalem does not know what's going on? Like, how can that be? Like, everybody is talking about the events over the last three or four days, and you're the only one that doesn't know what happened. And Jesus, he's so cool, he's so calm. He's like, what things? As if he doesn't know. He knows, he's just drawing close to them. He's, he's, He's drawing them into relationship, into conversation. And they think he's a stranger. We know it's Jesus. But they're supernaturally prevented from recognizing him. And I love this because it allows us to have this raw unvarnished look into their hearts and to their minds. We get to see what they're thinking and how they're feeling up close and really personally. And what we see is that they're super sad. What could have happened to the body? They're crushed. Jesus wouldn't be the one to redeem Israel. And they're they're totally confused. They're wondering, did the angels really appear? How could Jesus be alive? What is going on? In, uh, in the ninth grade, I read a lot of Shakespeare. And uh, my ninth grade English teacher, John Allman, one of my favorite teachers uh, in my life, maybe probably the reason I became an English major in college. Uh, he helped me not just read, but he helped me to think and interpret and talk about uh, what I was reading. And uh, he introduced me to the concept of dramatic irony. What's happening here is dramatic irony. Here are two disciples having just witnessed the most amazing news in all the history of God's relationship with his people, and they're depressed. They're looking into the eyes of God himself the source of all life, all love, all joy, all comfort, all hope, all peace, and they're still not able to see him. They know the facts. They know the story. But they don't understand. They can't connect the dots. They have the information. What do they need? Revelation. Revelation. Look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to them, oh, come on. Not really. That's my translation. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Come on, y'all. It's in the book. It's not just these two disciples, though, is it? All the disciples have been slow to believe the prophets. No one understood what Jesus had been teaching time and time again. 
The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. No one got it. They had the information, but they didn't have the revelation. Why? They didn't have the spiritual ability in and of themselves to make sense of who God is and what he was doing and what that meant for them. This is the nature of the spiritual. The awe and the wonder of Jesus' death and resurrection cannot be understood by logic and reason alone. Awe is awesome. It's a deeply true experience, but by definition, it's not always logical. Wonder is wonderful. It's a very real feeling, but by definition, it's beyond rational. And here's the thing. Ever since creation, we've needed God to explain things to us. We've needed God to explain himself. We've needed God to explain us. We've needed God to explain the world around us for us. We've never been able to know God or his purposes unless he reveals himself and his purposes to us. We've never been able to understand God unless he speaks to us and opens the eyes and the ears of our heart to see him and to hear him. And in the same way, this is so important. No one is able to comprehend the meaning and significance of the empty tomb until God opens our hearts and our minds. We don't have the ability in and of ourselves to connect the dots. I used to read this passage so differently. I used to wonder, man, why does Jesus hide himself from these two disciples? It doesn't seem like the character of God. It doesn't seem really nice. What's up with camo Jesus? Shout out to Britt. What's up with sneaky Jesus here? And then I realized, I think that's the wrong question. This was only about nine years ago, y'all. And the Spirit of God moved me out of a category in my mind, set me free and above the ingrained patterns and cultural assumptions, and I began to contemplate a better question. Why can't they recognize Jesus for who he is? Why can't I recognize Jesus for who he is? And in God's love and mercy in my life, it dawned on me, man, the problem's with me. I can't recognize the glory of the risen king without divine revelation. We can't. We cannot connect the dots without the help of the Father. The Father must reveal the identity and purpose of Jesus to us. It's what Jesus teaches the Pharisees in John chapter 5. You diligently study the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And yet, you don't understand that they all testify about me and you refuse to come to me to have life. The Pharisees had the information, but they didn't have the revelation. They knew all their stuff. They've been to school. This was their job. And yet they still could not see. It's what Jesus says happens to Peter at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16. What about you, Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? 
Peter's like, ah. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. How does Jesus reply? Man, you're blessed. This wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. No one told you about this. You didn't figure it out on your own. You needed the Father to reveal who I am and what it means to you, for you. Peter had the information, and then the Father gave him the what? Revelation. Look at verse 27. This is one of the most significant verses in all of the Bible. It's actually one of my favorites as well. And I can still remember the first time I read it and really understood it. I'd read it a bunch of times before I really understood it. But I remember the first time I read it and was filled with this profound sense of awe and wonder. And I remember thinking, how could this be? How could I have missed this? How could I have never seen this before? This changes everything. This changes how I see the scripture, how I see the story of God. This changes how I understand my place within it. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Y'all see the movie The Matrix? Okay, Jesus gives them the Matrix download. This is Messiah 101. Boom! This claim is extraordinary. Jesus teaches them that the entire Old Testament is about him. He's so clear. Every part of the Old Testament points forward to or prepares God's people for a king who would come to die for the sins of the world and rise again on the third day for their deliverance and worship and freedom and joy. Restoring them to a right relationship with God forever. All the people, all the patterns, all the prophecies of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This this is why we read the Bible as one story, one overarching story, one interconnected story. I have a friend. His name's Scott. He's a pastor. And he's fond of going to the people in his congregation, opening up their Bibles and tearing out the page that says the Old Testament, flipping to the middle and tearing out the page that says the New Testament. And then gently, lovingly tell them it's one story. Too often we read the Old Testament kind of only out of a sense of obligation, particularly at the beginning of the year with our read the Bible in a year reading plan. Or we neglect it altogether, or we simply see it as a series of great stories that uh, are helpful for our uh, moral character. They help us know what to do and what not to do. But that's not what the Bible is at all. It's, It's actually more like a mystery novel. It's full of clues. Some are obvious and some are not. And things start to make more sense by the middle. And then toward the end, the mystery is solved. And the clues come together in an amazing way that helps you see the arc of the story. And who it's all about. And what it's all about. And how to live in grateful response. The Old Testament 
is to the New Testament, like Star Wars episodes 1, 2, and 3 are to episodes 4, 5, and 6. 4, 5, and 6 came first, and they're great. I started with 4, 5, and 6. But then 1, 2, and 3 came along. The special effects were better. The acting wasn't as good. But it was helpful. And, and, and it gave you kind of these aha moments because of the character development and, and storylines started connecting and it began to make more sense. The Old Testament is to the New Testament like the Hobbit is to the Lord of the Rings. Or more recently in my family, Fantastic's Beast is to Harry Potter. Uh, these, these prequels fill in the storyline. They make sense of the characters and the events and they, they leave us with awe and wonder about Wow! It's one amazing story. And what Jesus is saying is that we can't read the words of the Bible without reading about him. He's the main character. He is the hero. We can't read about creation without reading about him. We can't read about the Ten Commandments without reading about him. We can't read about worship in the tabernacle without reading about him. Jesus is the center of God's plan for the world. And the scriptures consistently, cumulatively, and climatically point to him. He is the fulfillment and the resolution of the entire Bible. And it's his life and death and resurrection that stamps the words, promise made, promise kept, on the front of every Bible. And that's why the two disciples hearts are burning within them. Jesus is helping them understand all these things. Look at verses 28 and 29. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus. And at the end of their journey, Jesus acts as if he were going on. He's cool. Yeah, it's great. Just made sense of your entire life, your entire eternal life. But, you know, I'm going to keep going. But they begged him. They begged him. Stay the night with us. When's the last time you begged Jesus to be present to you? When's the last time you, you opened the scriptures and you begged Jesus to stay, to teach you? Stay the night with us since it's getting late. And he went home with them. The disciples can't get enough. So they urge this stranger to come to their house for dinner. This is a mountaintop experience for them and they don't want to come down. This is like an amazing week at Bible camp and they don't want to go home. This is what it's like to be in the presence of the risen Lord. Our hearts light up and we want more. We want more. You know what else is super amazing about this. Jesus doesn't force his way into their home. Jesus is just being Jesus. And they eagerly want him to be with them. And he eagerly wants to stay with them. They ask, and he says, of course. Look at verses 30 and 31. As they sat down to eat, Jesus took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. 
And suddenly, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. It's ultimately in the breaking of the bread that their eyes were opened and they were able to see Jesus for who he is and all that he was doing. They had the information, but now the Father gives them revelation. The disciples were supernaturally granted the ability to see Jesus for who he truly is, the risen Lord and Messiah, Son of God, Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, the Good Shepherd, Great High Priest, Alpha and Omega, Light of the World, Bread of Life, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Truth, Way, Life, right there in their very presence. Their eyes were open. The dots were connected. And they see Jesus for all he is and all he's done and all he wants to do for them. Of all the ways that Jesus could have chosen to reveal himself to these two disciples, I love the fact that he chooses the breaking of the bread. I just, I just think that's cool. It's reminiscent of the Last Supper, isn't it? You remember uh, in the Seder meal, in the Passover meal, what the breaking of the bread symbolizes for God's people. It's the splitting of the Red Sea. The great obstacle standing between captivity and freedom that God parts, that God removes, that God splits so this people could be free from slavery and free to worship him and free to fulfill his promise that they would be his people and represent him to the nations. And at the Last Supper, Jesus identifies himself as the Messiah and he takes the bread and he breaks it. And it not only recalls to memory the splitting of the Red Sea, but now it is symbolic of his body that will be broken on the cross to forgive and remove the sin separating us from God so that we can be free to worship God free to be who he created us to be, free to love him and love one another with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Nothing else standing between us and God. He breaks open the way. He gives us life. He becomes the way and the life. And for the first time, these two disciples see Jesus for everything that he's done and the breaking of the bread. The father gives them the spirit, to open their minds beyond the ingrained patterns and cultural assumptions, the Father completes the information by giving them revelation. And it leads to their transformation. They are filled with such awe and wonder that they rush back to Jerusalem to tell the others. Verses 33. 3 and 35. Y'all, that's a seven-mile run after dinner. You don't do that unless you got really good news. And they do. On Wednesday morning, the staff team meets, and uh, we worship at 9, and then we have uh, kind of our team business meeting. And at 9 o'clock, uh, Brimer's leading us in worship, and 
then we're going around and we're just praying for each other and we're praying for y'all and we're praying for what God's doing in and through our life together. Um, and after a few minutes, Bishop Sandy just stops everybody. He says, hey. And he holds up his iPad and he said, look, Peter James Balfour, he was born. And he takes the iPad and he passes it around and we're all like, whoa. And we're so excited about the life of baby Balfour. We're so excited for Robert and for Lauren. And we're so excited for Theo and for Juliet. And we just pass it around. Because when there's good news, when there's news that brings life and hope and joy, we can't keep it to ourselves. We have to stop and share it. And this is true of the risen Lord Jesus. When we encounter him, when we understand who he is and all that he's done, we can't keep it to ourselves. Sharing that is natural and normal and enjoyable. And that's how the disciples respond. This is so important, y'all. Because what this means is that the key to sharing our faith is not learning greater tips and tricks. It's not reading, memorizing, and passing out more tracks. It's meeting with Jesus in the Scripture, through the power, with the help of the Holy Spirit, asking the Father to help us understand, to reveal who Jesus is and who we are because of who he is. And whenever that happens, every time that happens, our hearts burn within us and we can't keep it to ourselves. We gotta share the joy. We gotta share the joy with others. So if you're trying to grow in your relationship with God by getting more information, by reading more books, by taking more classes, that's great. But how much information is enough? Information isn't bad. But at the end of the day, you don't need more information. You need to understand the information you already have. You need revelation. This is impressed upon my soul every time I have the privilege of visiting Tanzania. Y'all, just us in this room have more access, have more resources, have more information about Jesus than the 325 pastors in the Diocese of Kagera. The point is not information. The point is revelation. Do you have it? Have you seen the risen Lord? Do you know who he is and therefore who you are? are. I want what Cleopas got. I want that. How do we get that? Hallelujah. If you want revelation, if you want to see and know and understand and grow in relationship with Jesus, then you need to ask the Father. And there's one prayer that the Father always responds, yes, of course, And that's the prayer for more understanding, for more of his presence in our lives. Moms, dads, you love your kids. And even though you're not perfect, if they ask for fish, you don't give them a snake. 
If they ask for a healthy meal, you don't give them dirt and rocks. Even though you're imperfect, you know how to give good gifts to your kids who ask, how much more will our Heavenly Father, who's perfect, give the Holy Spirit when we ask Him? When we ask for the Holy Spirit, the Father will give us the Holy Spirit, and we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to encounter Jesus in the Scripture because it is the role of the Spirit to make the Scriptures come alive and remind us of everything that Jesus taught and everything that he is. We need the presence of the Holy Spirit in worship because the Spirit leads us in all truth. All truth is Jesus, which is why the Father desires that we worship him in spirit and in truth. We need the Holy Spirit to bear the fruit of Christ's presence and characters in our lives, helping us to think and speak and act like him, who he created and redeemed us to be. We need the Holy Spirit to clothe us in power, to be witnesses of Jesus, to share the story. We don't need more information. We need more revelation. We need the Holy Spirit to help us see and understand and grow in relationship with Christ, in relationship with ourselves, in relationship with one another and the world around us. And the Father will give the Holy Spirit whenever we ask. So as we come to the Lord Jesus this morning through the bread and the wine, as we come to the table, let's come humbly, but let's come expectantly. And I want to invite you to join me in asking the Father for the Holy Spirit. I want to invite you to come forward and when you, when you take the bread and when you take the wine to pray, risen Lord, be made known to me, be made known to us in the breaking of the bread. We want to see you. We want to know you. We want to be everything that you died and rose for us to be.